0: Hello and welcome back to Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz. I'm the founder of Future of Film and host of this show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. Today I am delighted to be joined by costume designer, visual artist and I would say world builder Anne Crabtree. Anne's work includes her iconic, unmistakable designs, of course, for The Handmaid's Tale, season one and two. She's also responsible for The, for the Sopranos pilot, Westworld season one and Masters of Sex, season one and two, Apple TVs, The Changeling, and, <laughs> uh, and recently she collaborated with Darren Aronofsky, For postcards from Earth, which was made for the sphere in Las Vegas. Anne's work was, or is, inspired by the landscapes of reality, alchemy, nature, and direct documentation. Her approach to design explores the transcendence of the real, utilizing emotions as a conduit or emotional decoder for the audience. She was described as one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business in 2018, deemed for, so for designing the apocalypse, <laughs> which is quite some accolade. Um, her work reflects the rural roots of Kentucky and a rich influence of her Okinawan heritage as the backbone of her visual storytelling, something which I know we're going to talk a little bit about today. And it's also... A long-standing collaborator with a another former guest of this show, Liam Young, including their most recent project together, Planetary Redesign, which premiered at Venice Biennale earlier this year. And... Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: thank you wow i'm going to always look to you to read that when I go on a job interview because it sounds way better than who I am that's amazing
0: No no my pleasure and, and thank you so much for, for for joining i'm just uh so excited to be talking with you today and looking forward to talking about your your work your process how you how you design worlds, I think, because I, I really feel like your your work in particular, but costume designers in general is so it's so critical, right, for creating the world of a story, creating the world of a film, and yeah, as I, as I mentioned, you know, something like the Hand handmaid's tale so iconic so in in instrumental in terms of taking people into that space into that um reality um but yeah i'd, I'd love i mean how do you approach a, a new project like that and i mean it, it, you know maybe using one example or or just generally how how does it work
1: i can only say what works uh and doesn't work for me and i think you know, when when the birth of world building happened, let's say in TV land, the two weren't quite symbiotic. You know, they, it, it they just didn't go together because TV is finite, but the stories kept getting bigger and better and bigger. The operative word is bigger. And I think for me, my mind always thinks, hopefully, but but generally quite expansively. I'm more drawn to that, bigger, Uh, not big physically, but big energetically and and thought-provoking-wise. And so, you know, over over the years, I think a lot of costume designers, a lot of creators have uh, looked to kind of edit their work ahead of time uh, for budgets. And so... In something like uh, The Handmaid's Tale or Westworld or even Liam Young's uh, projects that I do with him, you know, I tend to not think about the harness, not think about any barriers, borders, uh, chains, (laughs) because when you do, you're already self-editing. And so if I approach a script, I just think about the possibilities now. And I read it once as a story, and then I break it down per character, and I turn myself into each of those characters. So it's it's quite a process. And then I try to think uh, as an artist only, merely, what have I not seen before? What have I not done before? You know, I almost try to think about approaching a script or a story uh, like an alien from another planet that's never seen or doesn't know this planet, you know? So that because then after, after working in that way creatively, I mix it together with extreme reality that I know. And that combination I think creates a world that is recognizable, but eerie or recognizable, but somehow abstract. And mainly what I'm probably doing is creating a pattern that is my own because I'm a crazy mixture, uh, not only in um, race and culture, but also that strange combination growing up in places where I was rather alien, right? That's just my approach. And, you know, just logistically talking or speaking, it's really about, in terms of world building, it's looking at sense of place. For instance, uh, Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale is a world that we once knew, but everything is off. It's It's a trickery of the mind for the masses, right? I try to think in terms of being the sole creator of that world. And then eventually you you dissect and deconstruct and you begin to, to create with the director, the production designer, the DP, the writer, you know, the actor. But in the very beginning, it may sound completely egotistical, but I think most artists uh, or creative people create work in this way i try to think of myself as the sole creator of a world what does the water look like the beginning has nothing to do with the clothing what if i were creating these people how do they act what are their needs in terms of warmth uh, or when they're cold or what's their psychological makeup are they fitting into their environment or are they in discord with their environment? Um, Do they blend in out of necessity for survival? Or are they in a place analogous with nature's beauty and they want to mimic that? And then slowly I back into, what are they wearing? (laughs) And that's the only, I mean, it's, it's rather time consuming and it's extra, you know, but these are the questions I ask of usually the writer um, in the beginning, and and people look at me cross-eyed because they just want me to get to work. But that's how long. <laughs> that's how my mind works, anyway. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean that sounds like a true world-building process that you're undertaking there. And yeah, well, in terms of I, I, a few specific questions which spring off from that. So when you when you get the script or. Is it always a script or is it sometimes a a treatment? Both.
1: It's both really, you know, sometimes it's, uh, yeah. Sometimes I've had like a first pass at things, you know, often uh, these days uh, since the pandemic um, scripts, I might have a few scripts already or someone's been with a story, let's say for five years that happened on The Changeling with Kelly Marcel. Uh, recently, you know, I've worked with David Milch, uh, beautiful David Milch's writing and Michael Mann's creative eye on luck. And, you know, Milch is um, has been known for not bringing the, the script until the morning. He wasn't that on luck, but in a weird way, I kind of like that creative process of change because I believe that spontaneity uh, is is like a more beautiful painting, really, in the end, or, or that addition of spontaneity, you know? So, yeah, it, it could be anything and everything, really. This sounds rather twisted, but something like The Handmaid's Tale is a story that I fell in love with way before the film, the original film, and way before the television series that I worked on and I had to remove myself from the book because I loved it so much, because often the book doesn't 100% mimic the script you're reading. Um, but also in my mind, I'm often creating sort of side stories, off-camera stories that are not there uh, in order for me to get into the the bones, literally,
0: Uh, underneath the clothing for the person the why yeah the why and and their 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 motivations and their their reality and so when you're when you're doing that you said you you know you look at the for projects and you 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 take the characters and start thinking about it from from their perspective what is that is that something just like a mental exercise or are you doing that um on, on paper
1: Let's do you for a moment, okay? I just saw you for seconds, seconds before, maybe you know a few weeks ago. But to just, if I were given like five minutes, don't straighten your hair. But five minutes, you know, look at Alex and tell me who he is without knowing anything. My mind would say he wants to be rooted to the ground because he's wearing black. His his everything is black on top of. Alex, his glasses, his his uh, earphones, his jacket, uh, but his hair is askew, and the black weighs him down a bit because he's creative, his hair is askew, and um, he wants to have weight and focus. That's who I would say Alex is as a character until I know further. You know, it's just like an immediate, I mean, not to be weird, but I'm part not part, I'm psychic. And so that that is kind of a blessing and a bane, right? Because you don't want to think, oh, I know everything about you because I don't. But I do have ideas visually when I see the actor or when I read who the person might be on, on the page.
0: Interesting. Uh, what, what if I was to tell you this was actually navy blue? With that?
1: <laughs> oh, can't see because <laughs> I uh, can only see this, and it's yeah. dark from above. Oh, no, I see it. Like a, oh, it's a t- beautiful dark blue. Okay, against, you
0: have to hold against a, to sort of a different color, don't you? To, uh, I
1: see it, and once in a while, I see know, the painting in the back with blue. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Well. <laughs> I'm fired. I'm fired from uh, the first exercise. No, <laughs> and I'm no, colorblind, so now the I world mean, knows. It's a, it's, uh,
0: no, well, no, I I, I think your uh, you know, I think your uh, analysis is is inter- You know, is is good, but it's obviously doing it over a video call is you have these these challenges, don't you? No, that's really that's really interesting, um, and and so yeah, just taking taking it and uh, through that process where you're you're coming into the characters, you kind of I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're you know sort of embodying them. And you're seeing the world from their point of view. That helps for you to shape.
1: Sure, I mean the wider world. Here's another. Here's another idea. Because it's hard to to think back years and years, right? I think Handmaid's Tale was uh, maybe 2000. I was get confused if it was 2015 or 2016 when I first uh, got approached. But upon meeting. Uh, Lizzie Moss, Elizabeth Moss, right? She's had countless roles and her beautiful uh, strength, I think, is she disappears into the role each time, right? So I did not know her and I was meeting her in a hotel room that I had staged oddly without even realizing to, to look like a set before it ever happened. And I took out all the furniture in a hotel room, blah, blah, blah. But I knew that she had studied dance, right? And I knew that I wanted to, instead of photographing her in the clothes, which of course you always do, I also wanted to film her in the clothes because she was a dancer. And the way that her body would move, to me, would not dictate the fabric, but it would elevate the fabric I chose and I chose the right fabric I had made up a few different dresses and hats but ultimately when I saw her across the room and I did it in slow motion her movement reminded me that it was very important to have the fabric dance around each handmade. they all wore the same thing so the puzzle was quite intricate for you know for it to work for as a uniform for a society that was meant to imprison the handmaid, the individual, the dance of the fabric around the body would enable and embody the wearer to have some freedom of playfulness and joy quietly with the fabric moving around, just as they're walking in unison, imprisoned in their role, literally and figuratively. And I knew because the design of the fabric that went in between the dress in the front, it doesn't go in between, it was a long flap in front, came from uh, the year 2000. I was in the Duomo in Milan and I quickly sketched a priest walking. I heard him first, poom, 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 poom across the stones. And I was like, wow, that's such a good sound that I want to use later, sense memory again. And there was this flap, you know, rolling in front of his cassock, cassock, cassock. Uh, and I was like, I want to remember that. And so I added it to the Handmaid's tail dress because I wanted it to precede them and be a bit forceful. And then later, that flap was used when they're having when they're being raped, essentially by the husbands, uh, and it was a means to cover them during filming. So it's all it's all important, you know. It's like how do you harness the beauty of the real human in front of you—that's the actor—and use it to elevate the costume.
0: I mean, can, yeah. I, t- Give me some more examples, Anne, of that, if you if you can, because that's that's really, you know, I think I would really help to bring it.
1: Okay, Tony so, like, Soprano, Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini, a beautiful. Um, this is sounds this sounds crazy, but a precious human being wrapped in a giant mammoth of a man, right? But what I loved about James. Uh, His energy and his beauty was that everything was so tiny and intimate when you communicated with him. He was very here. He loved my tiny six-pound dog that he insisted at the time be in all of his fittings, you know. He just—I mean, I have a a picture comes to mind also of a friend who was his neighbor and him swooping up her little boy every day. Like, he loved the beauty of little— Right. And so I designed his suits in the pilot to fit him because uh, a made man's suit should should expect and anticipate um, respect. But I made it slightly too small in certain areas for empathy to grab his body a little bit. You know, like there are certain areas that are not um, on a suit for a man. And you can see this in, in sportscasters. I always, <laughs> I don't know anything about sports, but I've watched those sportscasters speaking and they've spent so much money on their suits and they're big guys and they always look terrible. You know, like, what is it? Like, nobody can get it. And I thought, maybe it's by design, because we're meant to have empathy for these giants of people that are pretty much demigods of sports, right? I gave a little, like, I mean, I'm wearing a giant men's jacket now, but it's like, I made things a little tight here. And in my mind, I'm like, he's always wrapping his arms around people. He wants to love people, even though he has to kill them. He wants to find the empathy in, in his job, you know, and um, I made his color serene. Like I remember there was a greenness to his suits and I made his robe white because I wanted a kind of <clears throat> cleansing palette at that point in the story. And it was a it was a mental moment that he was explaining to, let's say, Dr. Melfi, right? I just, it, it's, it's different on every occasion, but I think, um, I know with, with Tony Soprano, pardon me, I have a dear friend who is from one of those families in Chicago. I met this person later uh, and he said his whole family was like, who the hell's designing that? Like, it's too real. You know, uh, ultimately after the pilot, they went a little further, like bigger with the costumes, which I can do. It's not something I like to do. You know, I like to have kind of documentary truth mixed with, uh, not fantasy, but just uh expansion inwardly, not outwardly, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it does. It does make it does make sense. And what about when you're? Um, we talk about Handmaid's Tale a little bit, but you know, thinking about futuristic designs because I know that's something you've you've done on, on, on a number of occasions. What? How, how do you go about thinking about the future of fashion? <laughs>
1: so, so that's helpful. You know, before I ever became a costume designer. I was a fashion stylist. And luckily, and I want to throw this in because I think it speaks to how I approach the future as a costume designer. You know, fortunately, wherever I was in the world, when my eye line kind of shifted, whether it was in London from studying art and Shakespeare, but kind of wanting to be involved in the fashion of the street, This is going somewhere, I promise. Uh, That shift, taking my focus away from what I thought I was in a place for, led to greater things, right? So in my mind, I was going to be an art major, okay? I wanted to be an archaeologist, and I wanted to be amazing at Shakespeare, and I didn't finish school, and I went into fashion, But then that led to being a stylist and that led to being a costume designer where I utilized all those things I had studied. A costume designer is everything like an archaeologist and a lover of literature, right? But in fashion, at that moment in New York City, I moved there in 85 and I was doing fashion and around 89, 90, I started going into costume design the world was changing fashion-wise, and we were all looking to what does 2000 look like? What what, what does the future of the two, the year 2000 look like? And of course, it was like we are all robots at first, and then it got you know deconstructed and pulled back into this beautiful minimalism, right? Well, minimalism is like the second ingredient for Japanese or Okinawan people (laughs) for all time. Like that's the MO, that's the aesthetic, that's the, if we had blinders on, we would still be minimalist, I think, you know? And so that combination of understanding fashion and what the future in fashion looked like at that time in New York city and Being a fashion stylist, turning into a costume designer, that really molded how I saw the future when designing way into the future so many times in my career, let's talk Westworld. Uh, And I'm trying to remember, everything was a secret then. (laughs) And we often had no scripts and we were only verbally told something, only three people on the whole show. Um, including the actors, including the directors, like nobody knew anything except for three people, myself, a friend of the showrunner who was a producer and the production designer. And we had to keep it intact, right? Um, So the future at that point, I'm sure I can say it now because it's done, uh, season one was, I want to say 2040-something or 2080-something, right? And if you look at anything combining kind of utopian societies way back, let's say the 1900s or, you know, the atomic age, right, of the 50s, late 50s, 60s, or the fashion of the 90s. Look at Prada. When they first came out, they were uh, being influenced by military design But cleaner, cleaner, cleaner. Wipe away the details. Wipe away the past as a sense memory for your inhabitants. And what you're left with is the cleanest, purest Zen form. And in in my opinion, in my thinking, an Asian influence of minimalist Zen design. Buddhist, thought-provoking, simple approach. And so that means less is more. Buttons go away. You don't need them. Uh, This goes for Jonah and Lisa Nolan's Westworld. It goes for Liam Young in our approach for uh, many at this point. (laughs) Planet City, uh, Planetary Redesign, The Endeavor. Those costumes I built for him for Aronofsky's uh, um, Postcards from Earth, you know, for the sphere. It's all about, if I were to design what I'm wearing, I would keep the snake. I would make the jacket out of something textural with no pattern. I would design the same dress if it was me in 2023, and I wanted to make myself in 3023, I would make the same dress, but I would take away all pattern and I would make something tactile, something textural that I could touch, you know? What if our eyesight is different in in 3023? What if, you know, this is always a question, what happens? in the future? Do we even wear contacts? Do we even wear, do we even get to wear glasses? Um, Does plastic surgery finally fucking go away and we can all look individual again, right? Do people embrace their gray hair? You know, it's like all a question that is on the exterior as important as the clothing. In my brain, we have fabrics that are so well-designed, that they don't all have to be thick to keep us warm. And in my my design of the future, on many projects, because it's a personal preference, because I'm always on the road, I have five easy pieces that I can live in. And the last piece, and they can be all worn together or they can all be taken off, right? And they could be worn in many different combinations. There was something called garanimals when I was little that, you know, it was like you'd find the lion and the lion tag. And those went together. Right. And my mom, like we didn't have a lot of money. We lived in the projects. My brother and I wore the same clothes. So we really wore the clothes we wore. And pardon me, there wasn't a lot of money for clothes every year. So how can you take those combinations and make them interesting? That still plays in my design for the future. Why? Because what you do for the future, because you don't know what's coming. You don't know, does the earth shift so drastically that the temperatures are different? You know, in my mind, it's about survival. And in the projects, it was about survival, right, as a kid. So in my mind, the five easy pieces are one layer that you can sleep in, bathe in. It might be even slightly water resistant or waterproof in case your skin can't be naked to the waters that exist in the future. You'll see that in The Handmaid's Tale season two with the colony women, you know. Some stuff didn't get on camera, I always over design because I'm thinking too much about the why but I wanted things that look like sheer skin. And it was just a sheer layer over the bodies. We didn't want to make it look like Auschwitz, but it was similar. These women were sprayed down with chemicals in a place where it was a toxic wasteland, right? That's like the last place women go in season two in the colonies in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, So because my mother, is from Okinawa, a place where World War II started. And I grew up with her best friend, Aiko, here in Kentucky, uh, who went through the bombing at Hiroshima. She was outside and she had uh, leukemia, but she also had a strange thing she would show me, her wound. Even, she, she, she was a little girl uh, when the world's words, pardon me, war started, but I think she was trying to show me what war does to people. So she would show me her wound. The skin or sheer fabric in The Handmaid's Tale Season 2, The Colony Women, was a reminder of ICO's injuries in World War Two. It's a layer of skin that looks like it's falling off when wet. The last piece of the five easy pieces is a coat. And this happened in the last show called The Changeling, a coat that one wears as a coat, also uses as a blanket, and can be sort of utilized as a tent with a rope in the woods if you're having to live in the woods. So if you look at Emma's cape or cloak in The Changeling, Basically, that's a carapace for living in as well, if you have to live in the woods. This is all sort of, there's a through line here, right? Okay. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's fascinating. As I said, stories in the round. I can't speak any other way.
0: You're listening to Future of Film podcast with me, Alex Stolz. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about Future of Film, head over to futureoffilm.live. If you're not already, you can already sign up to our newsletter there, which contains not only the latest opportunities and news from Future of Film, but also our pick of the latest articles and opportunities from across the industry. So that's all available now at Film live and now back to the show i'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your your um your where where you grew up your your you know your origins and um you know you talk about your okinawan heritage and growing up in kentucky um yeah i'd just like to spend a little bit of time on that and how you know, you've, you've mentioned a few things about how it influences your your work, but yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting because approaching 59, I, I'm now finally getting it. I mean, I think I'm at the... I remember asking my uh, American grandmother what middle age was because I kept hearing middle age as a kid. You know, <laughs> I'm like, what's middle age? And for Okinawans, I mean, 59 is kind of middle age. We're at the midpoint because we just fucking live forever, yeah, right. so you know.
0: They, so you have a, you have a very, <laughs> um, very long life expectancy. Yeah,
1: and so I didn't actually realize I was being influenced until kind of recently, let's say the last ten years, you know, at at best but it is there. The DNA is there. And and, and in both places, uh, my, my mother and my father's heritage and sense of place for where I grew up, Okinawans are the indigenous people of Japan. A lot of people don't know that. Japan doesn't recognize it, which would tell you a lot. <laughs> we are hours away by plane from Japan. We have different DNA. Uh, there was a scientist who uh, in the late 70s, realized that our DNA is much closer to, let's say people in Peru, and we have nothing in common DNA-wise with Japan. Uh, the tattoos on my hands are um, are influenced by my grandmother whose name was Sudo uh, Kame. Nakandakari. And Nakandakari is a samurai name. My father was the last samurai in his family from Okinawa, not Japan. And, you know, there's a grace and a a life approach that happens, whether it's just living, whether it's making art and being creative, or whether it's, um, it's a way of life. Right. If you think about a samurai's way of life, life of the Kame, it's approaching your life in a certain way. You don't think about that when you're like three years old. But I realized my mother slowly, my mother married an American man, Charles. Um, they met in Okinawa. She really wanted to be an American. She studied English. She was a librarian to be around books. But. Uh, But inherently, she was always Okinawan. So my father, you know, I'm basically um, an army brat without the brat. So my father went off. We stayed in Kentucky. But my mother was teaching us about Shinto without even speaking about it. We would go to a tree. Uh, We lived in the projects, Lawdale Apartments. They're still there. Um, And we would put our hands on the tree and ask for help. Like whatever it was, you know. Well, Okinawans believe in a myriad of nature spirits. It's not a religion. Shinto is a way of life. That's basically who I am. And it took uh, an ex-boyfriend, who's a dear friend, to explain. <laughs> He's like, "You are split. You know, you are English. You're you are American and uh, Okinawan." And you are Christian because I grew up in the Episcopal Church, which is from the Church of England, but you're also Buddhist and Shinto, like you just are. And Shinto was the closest. So that's the kind of alien thing I mentioned early on. It's having these components as a way of life in rural Kentucky uh, that have shaped me, sort of What's the name of the book? I remember working with Anthony Hopkins, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Tony, on Westworld. And he was reading Stranger in a Strange Land. And that's a book that my mom and dad read. It was always around, this paperback. And I was like, hey, My, (laughs) my dad always had that. My mom always had that. And it's one of his favorite books. He was rereading it. Stranger in a Strange Land, like that feels like me. Uh, For all time. And I used to hate it. But what I realized is in this incarnation, I feel like I was born as a stranger in a strange land or an alien, literally and figuratively, you know, in this planet. So that I could see things in a different way and break it down and understand it and have it come out the other way, you know, in a beautiful way. You know, and so Kentucky is rural. I was born in South Dakota, um, which is also quite karmic considering we are indigenous from Okinawa. Um, I think I was there only, I was the first kid born uh, in the States for my parents. And I am an American inherently, but it's so tinged with this Okinawan thing. It really shows up in my. Way that I work, Uh, everything has to be dead quiet. (laughs) Uh, Often there's music playing with no words. Um, Lots of uh, cello and strings really feed the the process is what I'm talking about. Uh, I need no words so that I can really use the visual sense only. And the audible, but not think on the words. Um, so my mother only listened to classical growing up, and my father only listened to jazz. So that really is something I hated growing up in Kentucky, but it saved me from lots of bad music, I say. <laughs> uh, and I utilize it, you know, now as a beginning tool in the process to lead me someplace. However, along with that, uh, in Kentucky, because of, let's say, driving around in the dark as a teen, I would turn on the old church radio stations because I wanted something raucous and loud and moving and emotional, right? So I would listen to the black and white church radio programs and mostly for the gospel, but also in a kind of David Lynchian way, hear this insane, you know, from zero to a hundred kind of preaching, screaming, sing song, talking, uh, because I found it really interesting and scary, right? There's a lot of scary connected to the creative process from Kentucky because of, you know, racism, uh, because of the way we looked, and uh, political differences, and you name it. there's a uh, there's a dude across the street from my mother's house now with a cross giant cross next to his uh, door. And um, he's always, you know, eyeing my brother and I suspiciously. But he's also like an ex-leader of a meth ring, so we don't know if it's like a Breaking Bad moment (laughs) or Justified moment. I worked on Justified. You know, like it's it's all very surreal and macabre, but infinitely creative. My roots and my inspirations here, yeah. Wow.
0: Uh, I, uh, yeah, well, it's, it sounds, yeah, it, it just sounds very um, visually dramatic from, from the way you paint it, at least, yeah.
1: I always tell every director and producer, you know, I'm, I'm not for everyone creatively. I, I definitely have a different approach to many, but I always say you will never meet another one of me, not ever, like an Okinawan Rural roots in Kentucky, from the projects, from all walks of life. I, I really believe it's it's enabled me to have a kind of more open social understanding and psychological understanding for all kinds of people that that feed into creative inspiration for each character or costume I make. Yeah.
0: Um, Empathy.
1: Empathy, creative curiosity, and the wanting to know what's inside. Yeah. Curiosity is actually as big as the empathy because there's lots of people who are like, oh, that's so interesting. But then there are others who are like, wow, I want to know who you are. You're here to teach me something, you know?
0: You mentioned... Spending some time in London.
1: Yeah. Well, the London part was oh, me sneaking. That? that was me sneaking away from uh, Harlexton and Lincolnshire. So uh, I went to a sister college that's beautiful. Um, that I can't remember the name of this manor, but it was used in *Brideshead Revisited*. And I have to tell you that myself and my friend Joe Farley, who I asked to come with me (laughs) to Harlexton, we were watching Brideshead Revisited. I'm not going to paint it any other way but the truth. And we fell in love with that story. And we were like, that's who we are. So we end up going to Harlexton College in Lincolnshire, in Grantham, Lincolnshire. And it's the sister college of the University of Evansville, which is right across the bridge from where we grew up. And it happens to be the same architect who built the manor in Brideshood Revisited. So we were like, hey, done, we're supposed to be here. So I went to school there, it's quite tiny, Harlexton for those of you who don't know. And there was no fast uh, train to London, but we made sure we got there. And in fact, I mean, this was, you know, between 82 and 85, because I moved to New York in 85. But um, England was the place my parents let me move to. I wanted to move to New York uh, at 17 after <laughs> after high school. And thank God they said no, but they said yes to be going across the world, you know, around the world. Um,
0: That's safe in England. Hey,
1: yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was a very safe, beautiful place to be with lots of political changes happening at that time. And the punk movement had started in the end of the 70s but was still going. Um, I was able to read many different newspapers, the conservatives newspaper, the liberal newspaper. We didn't have that in Henderson, Kentucky or Evansville, Indiana. And we would sneak away to London and Nottingham and everywhere else in between. I would hitchhike to Northern England Can't do that now. Um, You know, spent a lot of time in small, beautiful trucks, having great conversations with truck drivers as they dropped me off in northern London. And um, it really, it was a tremendous uh, Vacation. (laughs) That's a Freudian slip. <laughs> education. Oh my God. <laughs> but it really was, right? Don't tell your mom about it. That's the yeah. truth. That's the truth. But no, uh, it was an amazing education, uh, life education, and for real, school education. It's all I remember from my education. So that speaks to my brilliant professors. It was also only 100 students living in a manner. How idyllic being taught by the likes where, of...
0: Where is this place? Sounds, Grantham,
1: sounds, Grantham Lincolnshire. Ridiculous. You should go. Yeah, so you should go. It's real.
0: It's, it's real. Like or something.
1: <laughs> I, I made it up. I wrote it all, and I hope to sell the book someday. <laughs> no, it's still there, and it's fantastic, and it's fantastically haunted. I was taught art history by Lady Wedgwood, You know, I was taught Shakespeare by, I can't remember. I was taught theater by an amazing dude from Liverpool. I mean, it couldn't have been better, you know, and we were friends with our teachers. I think that was the education that remained because it was so beautifully open. It was just like, and there were only 10% Americans. So we were literally surrounded by students. It was like the U.N., college and wow. i love that i love that it it has stayed with me it's a part of my approach to design that sort of punk street fashion element it, w- it has definitely stayed with me uh in my approach to design
0: education
1: right it's just um, it's everything so important yeah. yeah it could have gone so differently alex being here And uh, I mean, while I went to the University of Evansville first, education for a kid from the projects, it was everything. It led me to where I am now.
0: I want to talk about, we're going to fast forward a few years now to your most recent collaboration with Darren Aronofsky. Tell me about how that came about and the, the process on that one
1: that was really cool. And you know, my hope with every project is to do something differently than I've ever done. And the cherry on top is if the the process is also different than anything I've ever done. And certainly I could say both for postcards from earth with Darren. So he is You know, there's like quiet moments when you're by yourself driving or driving cross country and you always think of the list. The list is where I'd like to go on earth, um, who I'd like to work with, uh, creative projects I'd like to do myself. Well, he's been on the list for quite some time. And... Yeah, you know, sometimes you meet people and it's not as good as the dream you've always had about them, right? Or, or the dream you've always had about their projects. Maybe you're thinking this at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Try to be funny. Back around, back but uh, but um, with Aronofsky, I was in Canada. And again, it's always at a moment when you least expect that moment to happen. I was in the middle of nowhere with very little Wi-Fi and I got a call from my agent saying, you have minutes, we've been trying to find you, you have minutes to find a place with Wi-Fi because Darren Aronofsky is going to call you. No pressure, I'm in the middle of nowhere at the edge of nowhere in Canada (laughs) trying to get away from civilization. So I find a place and we immediately talk about art and nature So, and nothing about the project, so I was hooked. And he was telling me about his documentary projects um, and how he has been a proponent of ecology, uh, you know, since high school. Like, that's, that's really a backbone for him. And I was so excited. And he had seen... Well, he had seen The Handmaid's Tale, not none of my work. He had seen The Handmaid's Tale and he had seen um, my costumes in Planet City. And he had seen The Endeavor, which I think was in Spain at the moment. Two, Two projects by Liam Young. And that excited me because I always wanted to be an artist and never planned on being a costume designer. So that beautiful combination of one of my favorite directors and writers and him seeing me as an artist and not as a costume designer, I was, I was already in. And then he started talking about whales, which whales are a huge inspiration for me. Uh, ever since the seventies or, or before, um, Whales and Dolphins, one of my favorite films was Day of the Dolphin with George C. Scott and his wife. Um, And I listened to whale songs way back then, but also if I'm doing an abstract project like Invasion, which is about aliens for Apple, and I had been listening to whale songs (laughs) while designing The Changeling, and that's when he called me. And he said would you ever design uh, a futuristic um, free dive suit? I didn't know what free diving was. Again, not sportive, not uh, strength in me. He goes, would you ever design a futuristic free dive suit with whales? And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't hear anything else. You just said the word whale. I'm in whatever you're going to ask me. And then he got excited and was like, oh, maybe I can have you swim with the whales. And I was like, forget it. You don't have to pay me. You know, like, who are you? And he said the same thing, which was the highest. He said two things to me that I will never forget. One is, where have you been all my life? I love everything you've done. And I love your artwork, costume design. And then the second thing was. Uh, He kept calling me an artist and it was the hardest. I think it's the hardest thing for any creative person. That's a very difficult word to say. It's almost like a curse word, you know, and um, he said something about real artists always feel fraudulent. And he said himself included, you know, and I was like, wow, the humility and integrity. Of this person. I mean, that's what I I said to him. I didn't want to scare him, but like with you, Alex, I'm at this point in my life, I say what I mean, and I say what's on my mind. And there's barely a filter because I feel like we don't know how much time we have. And I said to him, Darren, I've literally just prayed for you. I prayed for a very intelligent, humane, co-creator, a director, writer to work with, and here you are fucking showing up. Like, how in the world? That was the last thing I said to him. So that was the conversation to the beginning of Postcards from Earth. The cool thing is I worked uh, away from Darren. You know, like, it's funny. Like, we're having this conversation. You're in London, I'm in Kentucky. We're on different time frames. Big thoughts, very, very far away. While I was in Canada, I was designing for Darren three costumes for a documentary. And then the costumes, which are basically uh, futuristic spacesuits for postcards from Earth. And the three documentaries are part of that whole film. But it's Free Dive, which is a a lone free diver. Everything's in all white. Uh, swimming with a, a mother whale and calf. I mean, beautiful. Uh, and they had to, you know, imagine someone who can barely swim having to design a scuba suit built to go with no tank in the deep waters uh, and having to be able to wait for a mother calf and baby to show up. I mean, Basically, you have to be a magician, you know, like how in the world could I do that? So there was lots of research, lots of pressure, lots of responsibility. And it's not easy to find anything white in terms of sports. Okay, so there was I had to build things. I had to make things. There was lots of mistakes. And, you know, of course, Darren had just done the whale And so he loved the idea of a single whale tail. Um, It was really a hard process, but it happened. We did it and it was successful. The next one was Free Climb, which was supposed to be in Sedona. Again, all white, red rocks. How in the world? (laughs) You know, and also it was with National Geographic. Nat Geo is his other folks that he works with. You know, there's lots of safety rules with each documentary because anything can go wrong. So we're not only designing for the athlete, as they are athletes, uh, for each uh, section of the documentary, we're also designing for their safety person in case they had to jump in. And these are all made to measure suits that have to perform as a life-saving device <laughs> having never swam in deep water myself okay this is all my brain creatively but also ingenuity ingenuity like figuring out how the how so that was one uh free climbing i think it got moved to italy in the end all white and then It's funny because I just got sent by Dwayne Fields, who I love, who is the first black uh, adventurer. He's from London. He's Jamaican from London. He always wanted to go to Antarctica. He was like, why aren't there any black explorers? And he became one. He became that guy. And I love this man because Dwayne Fields, F-I-E-L-D-S, he actually is teaching young kids... Um, to go there <laughs> with his partner. I can't remember who it is. But he sent the behind-the-scenes photo of him at the highest point. Uh, what is the highest point? It's in...
0: Mount, Mount Everest.
1: I guess it is Mount Everest, but it's this very specific uh, pinnacle. Uh, okay. he, he went there. So that's called Free Ascent. So that's all white as well. And, you know... Imagine what people have to wear to stay warm. I had to I had to design all things, never having met the athlete and it had to fit perfectly oh. and it all had to look like the future, okay? Cut to finally meeting Darren in Los Angeles, where right after the changeling, uh, I flew there and had to design spacesuits for in a kind of origin story, um, all part of the same film for The Sphere, Sphere's opening this past October 6th. Um, And it's kind of an Adam and Eve, I don't want to put words ever into Darren's thing, but it was an origin story and a, a very kind of utopian story of humans now embracing the earth, a scarred earth, and replanting the earth. I'm down, you know, in the way that Liam Young, um, Planet City is a utopian story of humans embracing the earth. Darren's, uh, postcards from earth was too. All of it really difficult. All of it, a giant learning curve. I worked with, um, a assistant designer in, uh, Canada and also in the US Courtney Mitchell in Canada Beth Hoppy in um, the US and uh, Tyron Alcott I want to say their names because I never get to in uh, Canada who was my PA minimal tiny team and then hands all over the world making it happen they do not make any costumes or any sports clothing in white why it It doesn't make sense. But for Aronofsky, (laughs) you do what you do and you make miracles happen. And it was all for the love of whales, for real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. You can see the whole process. On my Instagram, I did a whole like pay on to the how it all came together. And you'll see like the beautiful mother whale and baby on my Instagram.
0: What's your Instagram for listeners? Oh,
1: thank you. Hello. It's, uh, at, it's easy, and Crabtree, A-N-E, um, for work. And then my farm one, I'm going to say it just as important. I'm proudly as much a farmer as I am a costume designer. That is, uh, at, I always get confused, at Sancta Terre underscore one, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: We'll put it in the show notes as well. Um. And this has been great. Um, I could I could literally go on listening to you all day, but um, I, let me. I, w- I want to sort of finish off asking about the, the the future for you. I feel like my my feeling is that you're you're continually evolving as an artist, and I would definitely use that word to describe you and your work. But where do you, where do you see that evolving next?
1: Well, it's or an, in the yeah, it's an interesting time, you know, uh, everything is precious. I will say precious instead of tenuous. Um, we just have lived through a strike that went on forever. That's why I started my farm. And So the future is a beautiful zen black hole for the moment in terms of costume design. I'm certain, you know, it's December. I'm sure that January will bring work and I hope that it's work of merit. And um, we'll see. We'll see in terms of that. For me as an artist, you know, I I just want to say Postcards from Earth Another reason why I got involved is that it's a new format. It's technology that was never used before. And and in fact, every time I would say to Darren, like, well, how is this really going to translate in a, you know, eight times the size of a football field screen? And he was like, wow, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Like, we just didn't know. But I I told him afterward because I, I saw some clips, you know, from people's instagrams when they went i was like wow this is like pt barnum saying welcome to the greatest show on earth like that's what i want to be a part of something new that is a spectacle that is gives something to the people because the world is filled with such dark disastrous you know disastrous uh elements or the news is so murky or there's always you know some new virus that we're meant to be running from the dystopia is now the documentary right it's no longer fantasy and so What I would love is to be a part of something that really gives something to people to make us less, I say us because I include myself, to make us less cynical, to make us more embodied here on earth, to make us more inspired. And so I hope that some of that is with my own work, you know, my own stories that I am telling. And if it can't be purely mine, then I hope it's with creators who see my work as a vehicle to elevate theirs.
0: So that was my conversation with Anne Crabtree recorded at the end of 2023. So that just leaves me to say thank you again for listening to Future of Film. And I hope to see you back on the podcast very soon.